Welcome to the GoTo Podcast. Each episode covers the brightest and boldest ideas from the world's leading experts in software development. Tune in for practical lessons, compelling theories, and plenty of inspiration. GoTo gathers the brightest minds in the software community to help developers tackle projects today, plan for tomorrow, and create a better future. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events held online and in person in cities like Amsterdam, London, Copenhagen, and Chicago, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conference's YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech. Hello, welcome to GoTo Aarhus. Uh, my name is Christian. Uh, I'm the author of the book Five Lines of Code about refactoring, and I'm here with Adam. Hi, everyone. I'm Adam Thornhill. I'm a programmer with an odd combination in my background. I have a degree in engineering and psychology. And what I do these days is pretty much to try to combine these two perspectives. I've written a couple of books about it, Your Code is Crime Scene and Software Design X-Rays. Uh, great books also. Uh, I really wanted to talk to you about this social side of tech that uh, I heard you talk about, also because your take on refactoring code quality and stuff is entirely new to me. At least I've never seen anyone do forensic analysis, which is yeah, really interesting. So maybe you could start by saying something about that. Yeah, sure. I think it's a perspective that we need to talk much more about. Because one thing I kind of learned quickly is that there is so much more to code complexity than just the code itself. We have this whole uh, social dimension, like the current team, are they familiar with the code? And uh, to me, one of the great tragedies of software design is that organization that builds the code, they're actually invisible in the code itself. Mm. Right? We cannot pick up a piece of code and see, is this a major coordination bottleneck for five feature teams, or is it a module that's written by just one developer, so we have a massive key personal dependency? Yeah. That dimension is simply missing. Yeah, yeah definitely. And it, it, there is like so much about uh, the social part of uh, the code. It's humans working with the code, and it's them who need to refactor it, and there are managers, and there are all of these different things. Uh, I found actually about the managers a very interesting thing when, when I was seeing uh, your talk earlier, uh, that you have this yellow, red, and green categories for code, and then you can use this to show to managers to say, look, we have all these red parts, and that's bad. We want all these green parts. What I would expect to happen in that case uh, from the managers I've met in my career is a race to yellow. Right? They don't want to be the worst, they don't want to be green either. That seems wasteful, right? Uh, at least that's my experience. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Uh, you could very well be right. Uh, I think the challenge is that if you have red code and you want to move to green, it's a long, long journey, right? It's a lot of effort that goes into that. Mm -hmm. I've uh, worked with a customer just a couple of months ago. They actually spent uh, a year trying to improve their, uh, the health of their code. I think they managed to get it up 25%. Mm -hmm. So I don't have the absolute numbers. But what was so interesting was that they also measured uh, the amount of unplanned work that they had. Yeah. And they used that as kind of a goal. Can we reduce the amount of unplanned work? And uh, they measured something like an 80% reduction in mm -hmm. unplanned work by doing all these refactorings. Yeah. So uh, I find that really, really fascinating that uh, code quality is something that impacts every business. And yet it's something that we kind of we underestimate the importance of it, in my opinion. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's both the yeah underestimating what the value is, and it's been yeah. really hard for yeah. So I go and coach teams to to do it, and it's really hard to argue to the managers and to the management team in general that we need to invest more in uh, in these things. And uh, yeah, and I had the question: How do you actually deal with people? How do you tell them that you need to to uh, to impr implement uh, 
more time for refactoring. And I just said, well, we reserve 20% of the time every Monday uh, in particular. That's my experience is based on um, uh, the DevOps handbook where it says 20% uh, uh, should be used on just status quo, not even improvement. That's just what you need to stay still. Do you have any experience on, on, on that? I do, I do. I've seen it work and I've seen um, a lot of organizations attempted to do things like having a technical debt budget. I think it very much depends what you do with um, that time. Uh, during your talk, you pretty much used that uh, Monday for uh, allowing people uh, an opportunity to develop their skills, to do self-improvements, and that's something that benefits everyone, including mm -hmm. the code base. Mm -hmm. But I've also seen um, organizations where um, stuff like uh, paying down technical debt was mandated from above without necessarily giving the, the skills and the tool set that the developers need. And what tends to happen then uh, can be disastrous. So I've seen organizations that uh, you know they run some static analysis tool, end up with a list of 8,000 major issues. And the first thing that happens is you put a quantitative goal on it and say that, okay, over three months, we're going to reduce this from 8,000 issues to 5,000. Have you ever seen something like that happen too? Uh, well, I've seen it with warnings. Yeah. <laughs> when you turn up warnings the first time, people are like, should we look at those? Yeah, exactly. Yes, of course. <laughs> exactly. But uh, that's my experience too. The first thing that tends to happen is that, uh, I mean, improvement possibilities, they just get thrown out. No one even looks at them, right? Then you have warnings. Yeah. We don't have time for that. So you focus on the major issues, the really critical stuff. And even then you might have thousands of it. Yeah. So I think without taking this uh, proactive approach that you're talking about, I think we're uh, doomed. I think there's no way we're going to solve that. Yeah, but even talking when we're talking about the social side of the of the uh, of refactoring and stuff, also having just a number show up that's five thousand problems or something, right? Or ninety nine plus or whatever. Whenever it gets too big, humans are like, "Oh, I can't. I'm not going to deal with yeah. this. It's too many. Where? Why even start? Because it's not going to make an impact." And that sort of sets us further back, right? Because then you just turn off the warnings or you annotate your code to just not do that, those types of warnings or we don't use that or throw out tools. I've seen people just stop using tools because they gave too many warnings and errors. It's yeah, like, exactly. It's very common. It's very much, I mean, living with that amount of issues, it's very much like a broken window, right? So uh, I, I always um, kind of compare it to, you know, going from 5,000 issues to 3,000 or something like that, it's very much like choosing to jump from the third instead of the fifth floor, right? Yeah. Most likely none of them is a good idea. Yeah. And the reason I say this is because taking a purely quantitative view like that, uh, you lack the most important thing and that's the business impact, right? So it's maybe it's not, maybe you don't have to fix all 5,000 issues, mm -hmm. maybe we just have to fix five of them. But there's no way of knowing, by right? Because if you just look at the code, uh, you get, in my opinion, a very limited perspective because the code itself cannot tell you anything about the interest rate or the business impact. Yeah. For me, I've had situations where one of the warnings actually turned out to be hiding a much worse issue, but because we weren't looking into warnings at the time, we would just have that uh, go, go unnoticed and we had this huge bug. And when we started looking at the, at the warnings, we found errors afterwards, which was wow. just... Just amazing. And so I've started treating all warnings as if it's the worst error I can have because it might be hiding something yeah. really important. They take warning signs really, really seriously. I'm really scared of that. Yeah, it's, and I mean, it's, it's virtually free to treat warnings as errors if you do it early on, right? Yeah. And for all the new code you write, uh, definitely. And then gradually, what do you do with existing code? Do you gradually try to enable warnings there or 
Uh, uh, yes, I would say, well, I, I actually make an error budget and then I have the trend go down. Mm. As you said, it's it's more important that we're actually doing something to get it down and yeah. stopping the bleed so that it doesn't grow at least. And then over time, you know, you shave off a little. And also I'm very big, uh, again, on the human side, so I make sure to celebrate a lot, a lot of uh, cake or uh, drinks or whatever your fancy is. Like celebrate whenever something has gone right, even slightly. And also celebrate when something's gone wrong, right? I mean, yeah. you might, so long as you learn something. I think it's really important. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. You actually have a code base because you have a product company. I do. I do, do indeed you, have a code how base. How do you approach refactoring in CodeScene? So uh, CodeScene is fascinating because we have been using CodeScene on CodeScene from uh, day one. Mm -hmm. It's uh, multiple reasons. First of all, I'm a big fan of uh, eating our own dog food. I think yeah. that's very important. And uh, being software developers ourselves and making tools for other software people we are pretty much in the target audience. <laughs> so it kind of helps, uh, and I think this is very much underestimated. I mean, I, I used to be a consultant back in the day. And one thing I always found missing was that my part, my onboarding when I got to a new client was very much focused on the tech mm -hmm. and very little on the actual problem domain. Yeah. And my experience is that the more we understand of the problem domain, the better we can optimize what we do. Yeah. So uh, I think that's really important. That's why everyone at CodeScene uses CodeScene. Uh, the second reason is that we're a pretty small company. So we're our competitors, they might have like 10 times the engineering department that we do. So it's very clear that we cannot compete by doing the same thing as they do, right? So for us as a small company, we simply cannot afford much technical debt. Yeah. So we need to keep a really, really healthy code base. So it's all green? No red? No red, mm -hmm. a few uh, yellow dots. Yeah. But uh, I think as long as we're aware of where they are, and as long as uh, they are stable and well understood, then we can live yeah. with that, right? And once we get to that area, then we make sure to not make it worse. I think that's my number zero rule for managing technical debt. No matter where you start from, don't make it worse. Yeah. yeah. If you do that, then you're already doing better than, I would say, 95% of our companies. How do you budget for refactoring and improvement in general? We don't. We don't. People just do them automatically? People do it automatically. And okay. uh, it works pretty well. I mean, um, we're a small team and we have this culture where we really value healthy code. And, uh, but we actually started to think about that a while ago, that um, I like what you said, that um, you, know, you celebrated the wins, uh, even if it just meant that uh, something broke and we learned something. Right? Yeah. I think that's really important. So one thing we started to work on a couple of months ago was that um, can we kind of identify all the successful refactorings in a code base and uh, put them up there on the mm -hmm. codes in dashboard? Because I think there's so much we can learn from each other. So I'm, I'm a big fan of um, refactoring. I'm a big fan of the refactoring books that uh, you mentioned in your talk. Mm -hmm. uh, I also think that there's value in having refactoring examples from our own code because it's uh, code written by someone on our team, right? Yeah. So it's very likely that it's, uh, it's in the same domain, but it's also in the same style yeah. that we write code ourselves. Yeah. So that has been an interesting experiment as well. Yeah. And you said, you mentioned to me uh, beforehand that it's a very functional code base. Or like closure, right? Yeah, it's uh, closure. Yeah. So, uh, how do you find people who can do functional programming? <laughs> I, it's interesting. I, when I started CodeSyn in uh, 2015, I met an investor early on. Mm -hmm. I met multiple investors. But one investor I spoke to asked me that, hey, why are you using this really odd, strange language that no one has ever heard about? <laughs> if you would use Java, you can hire 10 people tomorrow. Yes. The thing is, I don't necessarily want 10 people, right? Uh, so it turns out that closure is uh, not only does it allow each person to kind of do more, 
than what we could have done. Mm -hmm. And with the larger team, you also have all the coordination aspects. So as long as you can avoid it, it's a win. And uh, I found that um, closure is actually like on a hiring magnet, right? The people who know closure, mm. they really, really want to work with closure because the drawback of learning closure and, or any Lisp in general is that you never want to go back to what you used before, <laughs> right? It's a one-way street. Mm. So uh, we never had that problem. Okay. And well, I think it's also kind of a good uh, hiring filter because if you know closure, they are most likely to learn it in your spare time and means you're really, really interested in this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Also, Closure is getting a great rep. Uh, a lot of uh, very good names are recommending it at conferences left and right uh, yeah. as the new thing. Although it's dynamically typed, and I famously is not yeah. a fan of dynamically typed <laughs> languages. Uh, coming from a type theory background, it seems it seems very difficult to. It seems you need a lot of discipline. And if there's something that I'm not uh, trusting people with, it is having discipline. Um, again, especially also because I exactly try to build systems where humans. Humans' default behavior is the right thing that I want, actually. Also on their worst days, and I would find people would tend to skip on stuff like using dynamic types and just I do. A, I didn't quite get the tests for this and stuff. Do do I test for a code scene? Yes, uh, we pretty much we have tests on multiple levels, and uh, I mean it's vital no matter what programming language you use. I'm a big fan of uh, things like uh, test stream development. Mm -hmm. We have integration tests, and then we have a bunch of end-to-end -end tests that runs on the whole thing yeah. that kind of complement each other. But I think for a dynamical type language, I, I could never imagine doing that without having tests. Mm. I don't know how we should uh, hold it together. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would expect that in a dynamic type yeah. language, testing is way, way important because you need something to like you need something to keep the code in place, right? When it starts drifting. Which is where I would usually use types or or even mm -hmm. proofs if, if I'm being academic. Yeah. Um, but that's it's just yeah it seems very very difficult to get sort sort of IntelliSense and all these different refactorings where I want to move stuff and just check that it still works without having to change the tests, which is what I usually find also. You must have also met the the problem of you know a lot of people end up even if they write tests they write tests that don't su support the code support refactoring they actually hinder yeah. it because they are too tightly coupled to the structure. Yeah, I've seen that so many times. I mean, in fact, I, some of the worst technical depth that I've ever seen has been an automated test code. Mm -hmm. And I think we, uh, as developers, we make some kind of mental distinction, distinction between application code, which we know is important, keep it clean, nice and tidy. Then we have the test code, where frankly, we're happy if we get time to write any of it at all. Yeah. And I think it's really dangerous. And I had so many arguments with people uh, telling me that it's just test code. But it's never just test code, because if a test lacks in quality, they will hold back your overall efforts. And the example you give is really good. My tests are supported to simplify and even uh, make refactoring possible, right? And if the tests are extremely tightly tied to the implementation, then they're actually hindering you. Mm -hmm. And there's very little use in having a test that uh, breaks the moment you change some internal detail in your uh, code. Yeah. It, I think we could talk about this yeah. for hours, I can feel, because my advice would always be, if your tests are too complicated, you should refactor the code so that it's easier to test. Yes. That makes the tests uh, usually... I always attack the code, and I would never refactor the, the test. But I think we're about out of time, more or less. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Adam. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, really nice to meet, meet you, and thanks a lot for that wonderful talk today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the GoTo Podcast. Head over to gotopia.tech to discover lots more content from the brightest minds in software development. Mm -hmm.